0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: Well, a tremendous Tuesday in the octave of Christmas to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope your feast day was fantastic, and we hope you enjoy the next glorious eight days of the octave of Christmas. Uh, Christmas doesn't end on Christmas. It begins on Christmas, and that is the beauty, one of the beauties of our Catholic faith. We've got a very special, not mailbag edition, Although we may get to an email or two at the end of the program. But it's a very special listener comment line call edition of Open Line Tuesday. So Father Wade is going to answer some of the questions that have come in on our listener comment line call. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. We won't be taking your calls today, but it's brand spanking new content for you on this day after Christmas here in the year of our Lord 2023. And our host as he is
2: every Tuesday,
1: our favorite father of mercy, Father Wade Menezes. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, Jack, and you are right in saying that we celebrate an octave of Christmas, inclusive from Christmas Day, the 25th of December, through January 1st, the Great Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. It's one of the two great octaves, quote-unquote, that we celebrate during the entire liturgical year. The other one, of course, being the Easter octave, which begins on Easter Sunday, which is a floating feast based on the lunar calendar, and the eighth day of that octave, of course, is the second Sunday of Easter, also known as Divine Mercy Sunday. So, during this octave of Christmas, Jack, we celebrate every day, all remaining seven days after Christmas itself, as though Christmas, huh? Yes. How awesome is that? Yes, especially on Friday. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So I hope you you can take Johnette out for a nice steak. Okay. All right. (laughs) Very, very good. Great. So so So, Christmas. Well, I was going to say don't blink or you miss the fourth week of Advent. Boy, that's right. That's right. This happens only once every seven years, by the way. Uh, We have a very, very short or had a very, very short Advent this year in 2023. We did celebrate the fourth Sunday of Advent this past Sunday. Uh, But as you know, uh, there was no fourth week of Advent proper, because Monday, what would have been Monday, the fourth week of Advent, Christmas Day, right? Yesterday, on the 25th. And today, of course, is is Tuesday the 26th, so now we're in the octave. So Christmas commemorates the birth of the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is one of the absolutely decisive events in the history of salvation, along with the sacred incarnation and the resurrection of our Lord. The word Christmas is even derived from the phrase Christ Mass, how beautiful is that? Jesus, the Son of God, was born in Bethlehem of Judea to Mary, who was betrothed to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Jesus' nativity came as the completion of the Old Testament, the fulfillment, Jack, of all the prophets' messages, and the union of humanity with the divinity. We rejoice and celebrate the fact that God's only begotten Son was born to the Virgin Mary on our small planet Earth, in this very, very vast universe, to reconcile humanity with its Creator. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians one fifteen tells us, our dear Savior, dearly beloved, was born on Christmas Day. So let us rejoice and be glad. And as Isaiah nine five foretold in the Old Testament, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. Upon his shoulder, dominion rests. They name him Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever. And Prince of Peace, so indeed, Jack. The, the liturgies for the the Solemnity of Christmas place a profound emphasis on the Word being made flesh. And keep in mind, we have the Vigil Mass for Christmas. We have Mass at night, which you usually see celebrated at 10 p.m., 11 p.m., or at midnight. Then you have Mass at dawn, the third Mass. Then you have Mass during the day, huh? and uh, not all four have to be celebrated in one particular parish church. The pastor can prudently decide which ones he's going to celebrate, but usually the vigil and one of the two Sunday proper Masses, either at dawn or during the day, are celebrated. And, and of course, a Mass at night is usually offered as well. So again, you know, the liturgies of the Solemnity of Christmas place a profound emphasis on the Word being made flesh, right? The Word is God the Son. The second person of the Blessed Trinity who, as the Gospel tells us, was in the beginning, was with God, and was God. We are also told in the Gospel that through him all things came to be, and that no one thing had its being but through him, and that all that came to be had life in him. These words reveal to us the reality that the divine Word, the divine person of Jesus Christ, literally entered into our creation. In the human nature he assumed, he came to be among the very things he had created. In summing up the sacred incarnation of Christ, the word is derived from the Latin incaro, which literally means in the flesh. St. Thomas Aquinas states that what he was, he remained, God, but what he was not, he assumed, human nature. How beautiful is that? What St. Thomas is describing here, Jack, are the two natures of Christ which both coexist within his one divine personage, what we call the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Uh, Christ, who is God incarnate, is one divine person indeed, specifically the second person of the Trinity incarnate, and subsisting with two substantially united but really distinct and unconfused natures in that one divine personage, the nature of God, his divinity, his divine nature, and the nature of man, his human nature. And the fact that these two uh, natures uh, subsist, uh, united but really distinct and unconfused, each one with the other, we call the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Why did the Word do this? To dwell among us, plain and simple. As put by St. Augustine, God became man so that man may become like God. And as Fulton Sheen says, God made us in his image and likeness, Genesis chapter 1, precisely so that one day he could take on our image and likeness as a baby in the womb of his mother, placed in a manger, an eating trough, if you will, in Bethlehem. Man is called to perfect beatitude, to ultimate and eternal union with God, and the nativity of our Lord is the first real tangible, fleshy, and material proof of this, which brings man face to face with God, as alluded to in the first reading from the prophet Isaiah uh, for the Christmas Mass celebrated during the day. These theological meanings of Christmas and the benefits of the Incarnation for our own lives are numerous. Even in the Eucharist, Jack, we see that the Word dwells among us still in His body, blood, soul, and divinity. The Eucharist, the source and summit Of the entire Christian life. Mother Teresa once called the Eucharist, quote, the continuing presence of the sacred incarnation of Jesus among us. This connection is seen, too, in the fact that Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. How awesome is that? Uh, So he was placed in an eating trough, in a town or village, which means house of bread, right? Which we consume in that source and sum at the Eucharist. Just as our Lord was placed in a manger in Bethlehem, so is the blessed sacrament placed in the tabernacle, a gilded house of holy bread. In this regard, our sanctuary sanctuary lamp too, burning brightly and continuously to signify the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist near the tabernacle, is seen as analogous to the star which hovered over Bethlehem, to guide the way of the shepherds and the kings, to go give him adoration and worship. So as we gather during the opening hours of this great solemnity of Christmas, uh, Jack, we, we become the first heralds of so wonderful a message that God has sent his only begotten Son among us in the flesh to bring us hope and to save us from all fear, despair, helplessness, and misery. We are likewise the first proclaimers then, and the first hearers of the entrance antiphon for the Mass at night, which I love. It says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. Words of the Father spoken to the second person incarnate, and we are to proclaim these, that he is really come into the world in that fleshy real, tangible existence. So we have borne witness to the fruitfulness of the sacred incarnation, right? The full flowering of Mary's fiat. So it is that we acknowledge early, very early, for those who celebrated Mass at midnight or later, the gifts of Christmas. And as is characteristic of this time of year, the gift-giving at hand, Jack, is that which involves a two-way exchange, right? God's greatest gift to us, His Son, and our gifts in return to Him of faith, dedication to others, and imitation of his Christ life. Until our arrival at any of the Christmas masses, we were, in a sense, a people that walked in darkness, not knowing, you know, what gift they were receiving, so to speak. But through these beautiful four sacred liturgies of Christmas and its celebration as a great solemnity, we now have seen the great light as told us by the prophet Isaiah, in the first reading for the Mass at night, it's as though our gift has been opened and its contents realized, just like opening a Christmas gift. In the responsorial psalm at that same Mass, we repeatedly chanted that today is born our Savior, Christ the Lord. This proclamation of faith is one whereby we have acknowledged this great gift of light, Christ's birth among us. And I like to say too, Jack, that such creedal statements find their expression early on Christmas, not only from our minds, hearts, and lips, but from our bodily actions as well. I love this. During our our profession of faith, all genuflect at the words, and became man during the creed. A public acknowledgement, as it were, a thank you, as it were, for the great gift received, the sacred incarnation, and now birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father
1: Wade Menezes.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, The address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: Got a great item for you at EWTN's religious catalog. In his book, Pope St. Paul VI, A Pictorial Perspective, Carl Schultz takes an in-depth look at the Pope, who's now a saint, and is perhaps one of the least understood pontiffs in modern history forever known as the pope who held the line on church teaching regarding contraception through his landmark encyclical Humanae Vitae Schultz examines the challenges that he faced as pontiff his legacy and his relevance today four sections his life his papacy his teachings and his time His times and legacy make this a definitive pictorial biography that is sure to be a treasured part of every Catholic library and home. Included are many never-before-seen photos of this great man who was a master of the gesture. It's available now at EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use code FREE at checkout. Again it's a very special listener comment line uh, episode of ewTN's open line Tuesday on this Tuesday in the octave of Easter and father Wade you had you had uh, you're, you're in a shouting mood
2: I am in a shouting mood Jack <laughs> my, my confers would usually agree with you on that too just by my nature <laughs> but anyway <laughs> yes I want to give two shout outs. Uh, to two different parties here. First of all, to Phil and Janine of Newport Richie, Florida, a couple I met a couple weeks back when I gave my third and final Advent parish mission there. Uh, they tuned in that day that I broadcast live from St. Thomas Aquinas Parish, and they told me at the last night at the reception, the closing reception at the, of the parish mission, that they were going to become regular listeners of Open Line Tuesday and the other Open Line shows as well. So they found it to be very catechetical in nature, and they enjoyed that very much. So I want to thank Phil and Janine for joining the open line family and uh, for tuning in each week and again they are from newport ritchie florida and also to sisters uh, elsie and patricia mullen from stevensville maryland a special shout out to them and a very blessed merry christmas and happy new year to elise and patricia
1: let's take a listen to the first of today's listener comment line calls
2: My name is Francisco in Houston. As as far as adoration, and I do understand we do not adore saints, only God. But during the liturgy, believe it's uh, Holy Thursday or Good Friday, uh, we sing, we adore the cross, the wood of the cross. We adore the wood of the cross. That has always caused a question mark in my mind. Would appreciate some kind of answer. Thank you very much. Yeah, great question. Yeah, the the rubrics do say adoration of the cross, that we do adore the cross, but it's as a sign. It's not as a divine person. He's bringing up a good point, Jack, in that Uh, The Church teaches that we give Latria to the three divine persons. Latria is a Latinized Greek term that properly means adoration per se. Not veneration, but adoration. And Latria, just how it sounds, it's spelled L-A-T-R-I-A. Latria is given to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit alone. Not the saints, not the angels, but to the three divine persons alone. And the English translation of Latria is adoration, quote quote. Properly speaking, adoration. So it is kind of a, 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 a inqu- a, an inquisitive reasoning here that we can ask why the Church has us adore the cross. Well, it's as a sign of the instrument that won our salvation. It's adoration as a sign, not adoration as a divine person. So semper distingue as St. Thomas Aquinas would say, uh, always make distinctions. So, uh, you know, for example, the rubric says, "...the personal adoration of the cross is an important feature in this celebration of Passion Friday." Or Good Friday's Passion Service, and every effort should be made to achieve it. The rubrics remind us that only one cross should be used for adoration. Uh, If the numbers are so great of the faithful that all cannot come forward to adore the cross, the priest, after some of the clergy and faithful have adored it, can take the cross and stand in the center of the Church, before the altar, and in a few words invites the people to adore the cross uh, simply visually. That's if the crowd is very, very large. But if if it's it's a doable crowd, they can actually come up, they genuflect before it, and they can touch it or they can kiss it. Uh, again, it, it is a sign, uh, it, it's adoration as a sign, not adoration of the divine person. Uh, we wouldn't say that we give it latria, we would say that we adore it, yes, but we don't give it Latre. And in other, some other commentaries on the Passion service of Good Friday, the word veneration is used. Uh, but even then, we wouldn't venerate the cross as we would, say, the saints or angels. It's veneration in sign. In sign how? Well, as the primary instrument that uh, our Lord brought about our salvation and redemption. And so remember, just as Adam and Eve were fooled by the wood of the tree, which bore the, the the bad fruit of which they ate and ushered in the original sin, so Christ saved us by the good wood of the good tree of the cross. Uh, this analogy is made by many, many, many of the church fathers writing in the first seven to eight centuries or so about uh, the link between the bad a uh, tree of the bad fruit eaten of by our first parents again which ushered in the original sin and the good tree of the cross which brought about our redemption and salvation. And while we're on this, Jack, just for the benefit of everybody listening, uh, I'll give the other other categories uh, as well concerning veneration. Uh, So Lotri is at the top. It's it's adoration, strictly speaking, of the three divine persons. Secondly would be Dulia, just how it sounds. It is spelled, D-U-L-I-A, like like the feminine name Julia, but with a D. Dulia is veneration. Not adoration, but veneration. And there we have uh, the the saints of the Catholic Church, and also the angels, guardian angels and archangels. Uh, And then in between those two, the Lotri and the Dulia, we have Hyperdulia, which literally translated from the Greek would mean the greatest of veneration, and that is the Blessed Virgin Mary alone. So again, starting at the very top, we have Latria, which is the three divine persons, adoration, properly speaking, not veneration, but adoration, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second rung, then, if you will, like a rung on a ladder for an image there, an an analogy, we have Hyperdulia, the greatest of veneration, that's the Blessed Mother, as dulia means veneration, and hyper means the greatest of. Then on the third rung, we have just simply dulia, which is veneration alone. Uh, and The word hyper is not put in front of it like it is with the Blessed Virgin's greatest of veneration, just simply dulia, veneration, and that's the angels and saints. Now, those three rungs, if you will are de fide church teaching. They are a doctrine of the faith. Lotria, hyperdulia, and dulia. There is a fourth one that one can have theological conjecture about. It's not officially taught by the Church, but one can uh, have theological debate about it, have theological conjecture about it, and it is this. Uh, in between the, the hyperdulia of the Blessed Virgin and the dulia of the angels and saints, we have proto-dulia. And protodulia literally means, from the Greek, Latinized phrase in the English, would mean the first of veneration. Not the greatest of, but the first of veneration, protodulia. And we can have theological conjecture that that is St. Joseph. And uh, Father Don Calloway does a a great... uh, discussion of this in his Consecration of St. Joseph book that came out a few years ago, just in time for the year of St. Joseph, called for by Pope Francis. So there you have it, starting at the top. Latria, Adoration, the Three Divine Persons, Hyperdulia, the Greatest of Veneration, the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, Proto-Dulia, St. Joseph, that's with theological conjecture only, not de fide, not taught by the Church, but one can contemplate it, meditate upon it, talk about it. And then thirdly, uh, Dulia, which is veneration of the angels and saints. So great question. Thank you so much. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls.
0: My name is Morales. I'm from Hamilton, New Jersey. I'm thinking about joining the Army, and I just wanted to know what, like, what does the Church teach about the Army or military?
2: Oh, great question, great question, and I want to thank you for uh, entering into the Army to serve our our great nation. Uh, Well, the 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 Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2310, tells us these beautiful words, "...those who are sworn to serve their country in the armed forces are servants of the security and freedom of nations." If they carry out their duty honorably, they truly contribute to the common good of the nation and the maintenance of peace desired by God. So it's a very noble, noble thing to enter into uh, the military services, and not only that, but to carry out your duty honorably. And just kind of echoing that that reality, the, the whole emphasis or reasoning behind having a military to, to keep that peace, number 2265 of the Catechism tells us, legitimate defense can be not only a right, but a grave duty for one who is responsible for the lives of others. The defense of the common good requires that an unjust aggressor be rendered unable to cause harm. For this reason, those who legitimately hold authority also have the right to use arms to repel aggressors against the civil community entrusted to their responsibility. And of course, then we have the major points of a just war and just war theory, that one cannot do more harm in defending itself as a nation than what was uh, uh, egregiously placed upon them when they were attacked. It has to be equivalent or less. So we have these theories of the just war uh, notion, and those follow suit. But it's a very noble thing indeed to enroll in, in the military and to support your country and to help defend your country and to help promote that peace. Again, if they carry out their duty honorably, military personnel truly contribute to the common good of the nation, and to the maintenance of peace so desired by God. So, Father, comment just really
1: briefly on the notion that I've heard from, from some people out there in recent years. Uh, as certain policies are shifting in our military here in the United States, uh, more and more people of faith are fearing that should they join the military, they will be issued orders that are going to be contrary to their Catholic or Christian faith.
2: Yeah, well, you know, that's, that's a, a notion of, of, of casuistry, meaning case-by-case case basis of what the thing is that's being presented to the individual. And sometimes, you know, one has to be a conscientious uh, objector, and hopefully the military branch in question, uh, you know, they each have their own uh, rules and regulations, uh, speaking of this country, of course, uh, hopefully those would be honored as to what those are. Uh, But one has a right to conscientiously uh, object to something that they're being asked to do that uh, goes against their morals. Um, and so we want to be able to have that freedom to go to our legitimate superiors and and state the claim of what it is that we're conscientiously ob- objecting to and the reasoning why, and to even invoke the the religious reasoning if that be let alone just against conscience, but it could be against conscience and also go against one's religious tenets that are that are firmly held beliefs and so uh, we want to hope and pray that the military will honor those as they're as they're visited on a case by case basis. It's a very
1: special listener comment line call edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. That's a mouthful. So if you'd like to be uh, part of a future listener comment line show, give us a call at our regular studio number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Eastern time, Monday through Friday, and you too can leave a listener comment line call. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: That's right, it's a very special listener comment line call edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. It's the first time we've done this on Open Line Tuesday, Father Wade, and I'm going to effort to create a more um, alliterative uh, title for this program the
2: next time we do one. You know, know, Jack, not only that, but I think we should have – Tongue twister Tuesdays here on, <laughs> on Open Line Tuesday. Well, that's what this is. And then, yes, you you've inaugurated. Maybe this could be something new for 2024, <laughs> since you've inaugurated it on the last Tuesday of December.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you wanted a, a couple more comments you wanted to make about just war.
2: Yeah, and the the just the so-called just war theory and and what that involves. I think it's important for Catholics to be aware of that. Uh, Catholic Answers at Catholic.com has a great entry on it and and what it involves. So, uh, basically Basically, um, these points here, the damage inflicted by the aggressor uh, on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain uh, for them to respond to it. All other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Uh, There must be serious prospects of success in the retaliation that's done, and the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated the power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this particular condition. So these are the the traditional elements uh, enumerated in in what is called the Just War Doctrine by the Church. The evaluation of these conditions, Jack, for moral legitimacy belongs to the prudential judgment of those who have responsibility for the common good, like, like elected officials. And so, you know, the classic formulation of the Just War Doctrine is set out in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2309, Says, quote, the strict conditions for legitimate defense by military force require rigorous consideration. The gravity of such a decision makes it subject to rigorous conditions of moral legitimacy. Uh, At one and the same time, these points must be made. And then those are the ones I just enunciated. So it's an important doctrine of the Church. It's all spelled out in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, beginning with number 2309. And uh, we thank our military personnel, who so bravely uh, contribute to the common good and peace of the world and in our nation uh, when they join any of the uh, armed services.
1: Let's take a listen to our next listener comment line call.
2: Hi, this is James from Superior, Wisconsin. I have a question uh, when it comes to uh, confirmation: if uh, any sin can make that confirmation invalid, any help would be great. Thanks. Okay, uh, even even in a state of mortal sin, one still receives the sacrament but one doesn't receive the graces associated with the sacrament uh, until uh, the sin is confessed, the mortal sin is confessed, then the graces of that sacrament take effect in the in the body and soul and thus the life of the individual who received it so remember we can receive a sacrament the, the sacraments they they work ex opere operato which is a latin phrase meaning they they're administered by virtue of having been administered or the more direct english translation would be that the sacraments work by having been worked Uh, They're imparted by having been administered validly. So as long as the proper matter and form are used by the one administering the sacrament, uh, in this case words and the holy oils used to administer the... um, Sacrament of Confirmation, say, to a young person in this country, usually between 8th grade and 10th grade, but but younger in some other dioceses here in the US. I've heard it as early as 4th uh, grade and 5th grade, because those particular bishops in those dioceses feel that the young person needs the, the graces of confirmation even sooner than 8th grade, because the culture is just so challenging today. But a bishop or, or a priest deputed, properly deputed by the bishop, can administer the Sacrament of Confirmation. And there, with matter and form, we're talking the proper words and the proper oil used by the bishop himself or the priest himself that's been properly deputed or delegated by the bishop to administer the sacrament on his behalf. So as long as the proper matter and form are being used, the sacrament is administered. The the young person receives it. The question is, do the sacramental effects... uh, kick in, if you will, uh, to use a colloquialism. There, do, do they do, do the sacramental effects take effect? Do the sacramental graces take effect? Well, that's all dependent on whether or not the person was in a state of sanctifying grace. Uh, venial sin does not remove us from a state of sanctifying grace, but mortal sin does. And so, if one receives the sacrament, provided they received it in in validly and licitly with proper deputation by the bishop, if it was a priest that gave it, talking confirmation here, and the the proper matter and form was used, the proper oils and the proper words, that young person, even if in a state of mortal sin, did receive the sacrament, no doubt, but they didn't receive the graces associated with that sacrament of confirmation until the mortal sin is confessed. This is why there's, you know, it's good to be reminded that all seven sacraments require remote or at least proximate preparation before it could it could be received so by proximate we mean an up close preparation before the sacrament is received by a remote preparation we mean several months or a year away from receiving the sacrament. So what is the remote preparation to receive the Sacrament of Confirmation? Well, most CCD courses have a year-long prep course, or are a year-long prep course in a parish through the CCD program for the 8th graders or ninth graders or 10th graders or 4th graders or 5th graders or whatever they are that are receiving the sacrament. They receive that CCD course a year in advance, and then they meet weekly for the nine months, like a school year, and then they'll receive confirmation sometime, usually in the early spring, sometimes at the Easter Vigil itself, okay? Uh, or, or beyond the Easter Vigil during the Easter season, if it's a class of, say, eighth graders, uh, rather than receive it at the Easter Vigil with the catechumens. These young people in the eighth grade class, let's say, are already Catholic. Uh, they already have baptism. They already have First Communion and First Reconciliation. They just need that, that third and final sacrament of initiation, confirmation. So they're kind of honored with their own class. So you'll see the eighth grade class, for example, as a whole, 20 students, whatever, uh, receive it during the Easter season. Uh, The the remote preparation for that beautiful day when all 20-some 8th graders receive the sacrament of confirmation at their parish church with their parents and, and confirmation godparent present and all that... It's a beautiful thing, but they had a, a year of coursework before that. Again, usually like a nine-month school year is the CCD program. It mirrors the school year itself, the secular school year or the Catholic school year. Uh, then what's the proximate preparation, the up-close preparation for for the confirmation? Well, if I was an eighth-grade teacher, I would have all of my confirmandi candidates go to confession just before they receive the Sacrament of Confirmation that day in May, let's say, during the Easter season uh, at their parish. I would have them all go to confession. Confession is the proximate preparation to receive the Sacrament of Confirmation, so none of them receive it in a state of mortal sin, okay? So that's, that's a good thing to be re- reminded of, and a great, great question. Uh, all seven sacraments require remote or at least proximate preparation before they can be received. Great question, thank you so much. Again, a very special listener comment line edition of
1: EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Let's take a listen to our next call. My name is Anne in Talland. Yes, this question is for Father Wade Menezes on Open Line. What happens at the final judgment when, we, when
0: all people's sins are revealed for all to know? What happens... Does that include the sins that we've confessed, repented of, been absolved of, and done penance for? Those sins are also going to be all revealed at the last judgment. Thank you.
2: Well, to answer shortly, yes and yes, according to the Church's teaching tradition. Uh, And we get this from sacred scripture itself, especially uh, from the three-legged stool, scripture especially. And by three-legged stool, I mean sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium. Uh, I want to urge you to get my book, The Four Last Things, a catechetical guide to death, judgment, heaven, and hell. It's five short chapters. The whole book is only about 100 pages. Uh, The five chapters in order are death, judgment, heaven, hell... And the necessity of the spiritual life is chapter 5. So in the, in the second chapter on judgment, you'll read this. Um, at this time, at the general judgment, all will see their life, as it was lived, placed before the just judge. And then I quote number 1039 of the Catechism. In the presence of Christ, who is truth itself, the truth of each man's relationship with God will be laid bare. Conferred John 12, 49. The last judgment will reveal even to its furthest consequences the good that each person has done or failed to do during his earthly life. Each and every soul will be laid bare, the good and the evil, the sins of commission and the sins of omission, for all to see. As we read in Hebrews, quote, nothing is concealed from him, all lies bare and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must render an account. End quote. "that's Hebrews 4:13. This truth need not scare us if we have repented, for that very repentance brings us the mercy of God. And so our souls will show forth the greatness of God's work and his mercy in our lives, rather than the decrepitude of sin that we might have committed in the past." For those who do repent of their past sins, the Lord tells the prophet Zephaniah, quote, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me in the past, chapter 3, verse 11 of the book of Zephaniah. But for those who do not repent, the exposure of their sins will lead to embarrassment, torment, and ridicule. This is why St. Augustine teaches us, quoting scripture, quote, all that the wicked do is recorded, and when our God comes again, he does not keep silence. And that's uh, Psalm. He's it's Augustine's quoting Psalm 50 verse 3, and that same quote from Augustine, quoting Psalm 50 verse 3, again, comes from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1039, paragraph number 1039. In other words, everyone's misdeeds will be made manifest for everyone else. But so will our works of charity and kindness. This cannot be forgotten. And we will be blessed with full knowledge of the fruits of those actions that we carried out of charity and kindness while we were still living on earth. As the Catechism tells us, quote, "...the last judgment will reveal, even to its furthest consequences, the good each person has done." Number 1039. This truth is tied to the doctrine of merit. Merit is the reward which God promises and gives to those who love him, and by his grace perform good works. One cannot merit justification or eternal life, which are the free gift of God. The source of any merit we have before God is due to the grace of Christ working in us. Okay, so for those who are saved... Having their entire lives while they lived on earth laid bare for all to see what that life was, and to also have their particular judgment when they died as an individual ratified at the general judgment, for all to know what the particular judgment is of that soul and why it is what it is, for those who are saved, no embarrassment whatsoever. Why? Because they are saved, their life will show precisely how they welcomed God's mercy into their life. Okay, For those who are reprobated, a nice way of saying damned, for those who are reprobated, they will experience shame and ridicule and torment. Why? Not because so much of their sins being laid bare before all that they didn't repent of. No, that'll be secondary. What'll be primary about their torment and ridicule and, and, and shame will be that their lives will show precisely how they rejected God's mercy while still living on earth. That's the main point. And just like for the saved, uh, the fact that they did good works and acts of charity, that'll be secondary as to why they're so happy on the day of judgment when their entire life at the general judgment is being laid bare before all. What will be primary for the saved is that their life will show how they welcomed God's mercy, huh? So this is a very important doctrine of the church, supported very strongly, especially by Scripture, but also by sacred tradition in the magisterium. Great question. Thank you so much.
1: want to invite you to check out Take Two with Jerry and Debbie tomorrow at noon Eastern time. Very special guest tomorrow, Bishop Joseph Coffey, who's an auxiliary bishop for the Archdiocese and Military Services here in the United States. Great conversation with him tomorrow on Take Two with Jerry and Debbie, noon Eastern time, right here on E W. TN radio. Let's take a listen to our next listener comment line
0: call. My name is Chrissy. I have a question about what happens whenever we die. Do we go to heaven, purgatory? Like, are we awake or are we asleep? And I just want to question that because I think of my grandma and is she awake watching over us? Or is she asleep and doesn't even know what's going on right now? Thank you.
2: Great question. Well, we we are awake insofar as the soul is immortal, and the soul's faculties of intellection especially uh, never go out. So the person who dies and is judged immediately at their death, what we call the particular judgment— they know, quote-unquote, they know what their judgment is. Uh, Even though the soul has separated from the body by this point, the soul is immortal, it never dies, it never sleeps, if you will. Um, We talk about the sleep of death insofar as the body goes out, uh, the, the tangible physical body retires, uh, either because of old age or because of illness taking over, like cancer. And we talk about the sleep of death, and which is really a, a, a statement about the separation of body and soul, which we define as, quote, clinical death. But the the four primary faculties of the soul are intellect, will, memory, and imagination. And uh, some of those are put on hold because, like will, because will is about choosing. Well, you can no longer choose after you die because you're out of your body and you choose based on sensory powers through the five bodily powers of sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing. Am I going to have this second piece of blueberry pie with vanilla ice cream on top or not? You know, well, once the soul and body separate, you no longer have that ability to choose anymore. So some of those faculties of the soul are retired. They're they're still able to be reunited with the body at the general judgment and be enacted again. But until that happens, they're kind of put on hold, but not intellection. Uh, Intellection from the intellect knows, again, quote, unquote, it knows uh, what's going on, and it never dies. And so this is why we can have a real communio, communion, uh, with the faithful departed. Uh, The members of the Church triumphant in heaven, if they are in heaven, uh, and the members of the Church suffering in purgatory, who are still atoning for their temporal punishment due to already forgiven mortal and venial sin while they lived on earth... Um, also known as members of the church penitent. The holy souls in purgatory are known as the church penitent as well as the church suffering. So purgatory, to answer your question about do we go to purgatory or straight to heaven, that's dependent upon whether or not at the time of your earthly death you have already atoned for or not Uh, the temporal punishment due to your already forgiven mortal and venial sins. If you have already atoned for that temporal punishment for your already forgiven mortal and venial sins while living on earth, then there's no need to go to purgatory, and the soul enters heaven immediately, which I like to say is God's plan A for us. His plan B for us, if you want to call it that, is to go to purgatory— Why do I say that? Because at least the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven once that temporal punishment is atoned for. Now, why do we have to atone for temporal punishment even after the sin is forgiven? Because sin is messy. There's four categorical consequences due to sin, uh, and, and those four are personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic, and they're treated in number 1469 of the Catechism, paragraph number 1469 of the Catechism, right after the section on the sacrament of penance. So this is why the sacrament of penance should be received so often in one's life, like a good holy monthly confession, even if it just be a monthly confession of venial sins, because the the actual practice of going 12 times a year monthly is what's keeping you away from mortal sin, and so all you have to do each month is confess venial sins. That's a beautiful thing. That's the main That's the main goal of a monthly confession is to have only venial sins to confess, right? And it's that practice of monthly confession that's per se keeping you away from mortal sin, and that's a beautiful thing. So our goal is to atone for the temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sin now while still living so we can enter heaven immediately upon our death. I pray for this daily in my morning offering when I get up, and for those of you who want to know what Father Wade's morning offering is as a point of witness, not as a point of me Pat myself on the shoulder, but as a point of spiritual witness, I want you to pray my morning offering where I pray that the day I do die, whether it's suddenly, like in a car accident, or slowly, like through a slow demise, like cancer, and I have cancer history in my family. Both of my parents died from cancer, for example. God rest their souls. Uh, whether I die suddenly, like in a car accident, or uh, slowly through a slow demise of illness, like cancer, I pray in my morning offering that the day I do die, I will have made a morning offering okay? I pray that in my morning offering, that I will have made a morning offering the day I die. The second thing I pray for in my morning offering, and you'll see this if you print it out at fathersofmercy.com, I pray that um, I will not have to atone for any temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sins at the moment of my death, thereby attaining the greatest of all graces of entering heaven immediately upon my death. And every... Every Christian should pray that. Every Catholic Christian should pray that, along with praying for the, 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 the goal that on the day you die, you will have prayed a morning offering. For us Catholic Christians, the morning offering should be a staple, staple uh, uh, spiritual practice in the spiritual life. Um, you know, Jack, uh, you, you like my list, you say, of my 14... Uh, things to do to help foster the the Catholic spiritual life on a daily basis. One of them is the morning offering. And by the way, while you're looking at my morning offering at FathersOfMercy.com, just simply put in the words morning offering on the search bar there at FathersOfMercy.com after clicking on the magnifying glass. uh, Also put in the words uh, 14 spiritual exercises, 14 spiritual exercises to help foster the spiritual life, and my list of 14 things will come up, one of which is the morning offering. Uh, So yeah, along with monthly confession is another one of the 14, right? And so uh, that's why we want to uh, pray to go to heaven immediately, because that's God's plan A for us. Great question. Thank you so much. Again,
1: it's a very special mail. uh, It's not a mailbag edition. It's a listener comment line call edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Let's take a listen to another call.
0: Kathleen from Westfield, Indiana. My question is about mortal sin and what is mortal sin. And there is such confusion about the sins that are mortal sins. And it's my understanding if you die... After committing a mortal sin, you go straight to hell. But if there is such confusion about what is considered mortal sin, for example, missing mass on Sunday, etc., a lot of people don't see that as a mortal sin. If they don't see that as a mortal sin and they go to, you know, they die at that time, do they go to hell? Like I feel like the Catholic Church needs to better explain what is mortal sin.
2: Kathleen wants a list. Yeah. and and, Well, Kathleen, I'll I'll share this with you. You you state that the Catholic Church needs to do a better job explaining what a mortal sin is. I I would say that the teaching is already there, and it's very clearly spelled out, in fact, especially in the Universal Catechism that came out in 1992 from St. John Paul II. I would say that the laity uh, need to make themselves better students of the faith— Uh, By knowing their faith better and thereby living truly and sincerely their sacrament of baptism and their sacrament of confirmation, which we talked about earlier this hour, in fact, uh, sustained by regular Eucharist and regular reconciliation, those four sacraments enrich one's marriage, one's singlehood, one's clerical state and holy orders— It even prepares one to receive the sacrament of the anointing of the sick more efficaciously. So living this active sacramental life, this this very strong sacramental economy, makes us better students of the faith with a stronger spiritual life, and we become better students of the faith learning about these particular truths. So Kathleen, I I want to direct you to number 1854, through number 1864 of the Universal Catechism, again number 1854 through 1864, which talks about the gravity of sin, mortal and venial. So sins are rightly evaluated according to their gravity. A mortal sin has three elements present. Grave matter, done with fullness of knowledge of its grave matter, and done with deliberate consent of one's will. Let's go through those again. Grave matter, meaning it seriously contravenes God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Grave matter. Number two, it's done with fullness of knowledge, the particular action in question. It's done with grave matter. Excuse me, it's done with full knowledge that it's grave matter. And number three, with that full knowledge, you do it with deliberate consent of your will anyway. Grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of your will. Listen to this, number 1857 says, for a sin to be mortal, three conditions must together be met. Meaning if one or two of these three are missing, it's a venial sin. Listen to this, 1857, for a sin to be mortal, three conditions must together be met. Mortal sin is sin whose object is grave matter, and which is all con- also committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. Grave matter is specified by the Ten Commandments, number 1858 tells us, responding to the answer of Jesus to the rich young man, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. The gravity of sins is more or less great. Murder is graver than theft, for example. One must also take into account who is wronged. Violence against parents is in itself greater than violence done against a stranger. Okay? So, grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of your will. If all three of those are present, you have a mortal sin. If one or two of those is missing, you have a venial sin. So let's take the objective mortal sin, objective meaning it's always, always and everywhere, a mortal sin. But subjectively, it may not be a mortal sin. So you can have the the objective mortal sin of abortion. It falls under, thou shalt not kill, right? Uh, but it could be that the person who had the abortion had no Christian upbringing whatsoever, had no idea it was objectively a mortal sin. So there's not fullness of knowledge there that it's a mortal sin. Father Wade, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us.
1: On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this very special listener comment line edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless. Okay.